This morning, I get to introduce to you again someone that most of you have had a chance to meet and I uh, dare say already come to love, the former president of the nation of Ecuador, with here, here with his family. And once again, I'd first like to welcome the first former first lady of Ecuador, Ecuador Senora Josefina Duran Valle. And I'd like to also once again welcome uh, the president's daughter, Alicia, Senora Alicia de Mateus. And I'm not sure where Alicia is. Where are you, Alicia? Back there, taking pictures. And I'd also like to introduce uh, a gentleman who's been traveling with the president and providing his security, uh, Senor Angel Martinez. I think it's fair to say that President Sixto Duran Bayen uh, is the first president uh, ever in the history of the world to receive a standing ovation at the Westmont Biola basketball game. <laughs> and uh, also the first to do a golf demonstration with his cane at halftime. So uh, let's welcome back President Duran Bayen. And what we're going to do this morning is uh, simply take questions from you. And uh, we could just sit here in silence for 30 or 40 minutes, or you can uh, ask any question you wish. Uh, there are two mics, one over there and one over here. And we thought we would make this a very interactive time with the president. Uh, so you may be worried about how to address him, and just, you can address him as Mr. President will be just fine. So. Let's take a, uh, have anybody move to the mic who has a question and, and the president will respond to those questions um, and that will, we'll just have an open discussion. And I've got a few questions for him as well. Come on, somebody has the courage. There we go, somebody's moving. Well, I'm going to ask a question while you get the courage then. Mr. President, I'd like to ask, in, in your administration in Ecuador, what was your most challenging moment and why? Well, uh, I could say that there were several moments, really not just one. Uh, it, it depends on the nature of the decision I had to take. Possibly the most challenging was the one when we were attacked uh, suddenly by our southern neighbor, and I had to take the decision to order the people into battle. Uh, the day that the first uh, casualty was brought out of the jungle, uh, I felt as if I have sent him personally to his death, but that was a resolution I had to take. In other, uh, type of events. Uh, all my campaign, I have uh, emphasized that uh, there were changes needed in Ecuador. 
And everybody talk about changes. All candidates, possibly even here in this country, no matter how small the government or how big, nationwide or local-wise, uh, everybody talks about the changes, about the necessity of changes. But uh, uh, later, when one is in office, it seems that everybody forgets to what they have talked about to get elected. And I did not, and it was very hard to get some changes in the countries, changes in attitude, changes in regulations, changes in laws, changes in behavior. And that required uh, quite a bit of <clears throat> political opposition, naturally, from the press. Uh, uh, there were many other instances of other uh, type of decisions that uh, I had to take while in government. Uh, the decision to try and help Ecuador get into the World Cup, uh, Football Cup. Some of you play soccer, I know. And uh, well, uh, this needed uh, as a first stage for the local Latin American Cup to prepare some uh, scenarios. And uh, that was, uh, we made it a point that Ecuador had at one time or another to get a decision to be in a world event such as this. And, uh, we did very good and uh, eventually was one of the teams that was selected to the, uh, for the eliminatories and we almost made it, but uh, next time. Next time. Okay. Do we have some questions from the audience? We have one over here. Well, I guess my question would be just I'm trying to think how to word this well. Um, I, I've heard some of the things you've said about the, the vast differences in wages between workers. Yes. And, and I feel somehow that's, that's not right, um, yet, yet part of me thinks that, well, this is an inherent part of capitalism where the rich tend to take advantage of the poor um, just because they've, they've got a lot of the wealth and maybe they can do that. But I, I would ask, how would you say the best response would be as an individual um, to that, because I, I really feel somewhat limited in what I can do. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a religious studies major, and um, there's a sense where I can spread the word among among other people, maybe of what what is happening. But what would you say the, the best, maybe most Christian response would be to that, without um, devoting my life to going out and talking about it? Well. Uh in my way of thinking, uh, the best uh, reasoning I can give to that is what happened in this, your own country, here in this United States. When, uh, the, uh, as I mentioned the other day, the Europeans settled, they tried to settle in the areas where they would have a similarity of conditions that the ones they have left. But still, you needed to work the country, you needed to develop, you needed to do certain other things. And for that, your uh, forebearers, the, the European people, brought to do the, those cores in either sectors or geographical areas, people from other parts of the world. You brought the slaves. And uh, basically, the situation although it was a difference, it's not uh, slavery uh, in the rest of the world, but uh, what you had here, and as a consequence of that, is essentially the same. And when this starting, 
to remedy was when you as a country realized that if this was the country of equal opportunities, this ought to be not just in name, but in actual doing. It's not uh, so far away. I was a young student. I was a young uh, university student here in this country uh, when, for instance, I went on a trip to San Francisco. And another trip I went to New Orleans. And in my trip to New Orleans or San Francisco, I found that still, and this, mind you, was the 40s, the time that maybe your parents were born. I got into a bus in New Orleans. I got into a bus. And an old lady got into the bus afterwards. And I stood up to give her my seat. I was accustomed from my country that if especially an elderly lady gets in a means of transportation, I ought to get up and give her my seat. And would you know, the driver of that bus or a tramway, I don't remember what it was, he got up from his conducting place, walked back to where I was, and he said, I could not do that. That that was the white man's section, and I couldn't give a lady, a color lady, a seat in that part. This might be a little dramatic at this time because you don't have these things. But this is it's only recently when you as a country start thinking that equal opportunities, equal rights, equal benefits, equality in one word meant that and not just your own interpretation. Now in regards to the international uh, relationship the moment that the, not just the United States, the industrialized country realized that you have benefited because originally to the white people, you, you give them that equal opportunity and that gradually, really through the last two generations, you've given that to all human beings regardless of creed or color, then is the moment when our countries in Latin America without equality of condition can be inserted into the world development. So what can you do as a young man? Well, try to work all your life, all your life towards really meaning that equality means what the word means. It comes from the Latin, and it means equal treatment, means similar conditions for all mankind. Thank you, Mr. President. Question over here. I wonder about the size and visibility of the Jewish community in your country and also of African uh, people of, um, who are historically uh, African and anti-Semitism and hate crimes. Do, um, are these significant social problems in Ecuador? Well, the social program, not just in Ecuador, in most of Latin America, is a consequence of the economic conditions, the possibility of not having equal development through the very start of the colonialist system that I mentioned about the other day, and maybe we don't need to go into that again. But to answer specifically your question, I would say that Ecuador and some of the people in this room have been in Ecuador is one of the countries possibly where there is less uh, racial friction. 
Uh, we have a very small Jewish uh, community. We have a, a fairly, I would say, uh, larger but still small uh, Arab descent uh, community. And uh, uh, most of the people in Ecuador are mixed blood, a mixture of uh, the Indian with uh, the various uh, white groups. And uh, it, it isn't anymore, uh, actually from way, way back, uh, the uh, uh, ruling of the uh, white or white descendant. It, it's more as it is everywhere in the world that the so-called society quotations is really the people with the most means. But you have that uh, the people are uh, given uh, the opportunity uh, to incorporate themselves if they work. I would say that in, in my country, the people that want to work are successful. The people do not want to work are not successful. Why do I make this distinction? Because unfortunately, during all this period after the World War II, the, uh, the countries were influenced by what was at that time the uh, so-called liberal, the left movement in which the state, sort of a reflection of what was happening behind the Iron Curtain, the state was the owner of your life, the owner of your future, the ruler of what you had or had not to do. It didn't get, of course, to the creation of uh, communist or socialist states, only Cuba later became that. But uh, it got to the point where, where through democratic means, through what they call the CEPALIS from CEPAL, the Comisión Económica para América Latina, all the countries got uh, in the spirit that the solution to all their economic problems was to substitute imports. In other words, instead of uh, importing uh, whatever from this country, food, medicine, uh, machinery, etc., to produce it in the country. And they forced some sort of an industrialization, but by the state. And this, this meant, of course, that all heavy industry, all services, was in the hands of government. And it's, uh, the tendency now is to reverse that and go back to uh, privatization that it goes to private hands. And uh, if any, to answer again your question, any preference would be demonstrated in these countries, including my own, would be more towards the so-called public uh, syndication, the, the unions we call syndicatos. They are the ones that had had the benefits because they got into to work for the state and that gradually, this is one of the reasons why we want to go back to privatization, those benefits that started this movement that they wanted to take from a few, they were just substituted and gave them to the people that work in the national utilities and the national services sector. But the rest of the country was the same. And this is one of the things that my government tried to do. It was very hard. I didn't have Congress. I never had Congress during my four years in office. It was just uh, to, to take a decision and work for it, to try to uh, go back to the private individual, to, left, uh, to leave uh, uh, the initiative of participating 
in the development of the country socially and economically to the private sector, to take it away from just a few of the public sector. Let the public sector be the regulator of the development, but let the initiative of the private individual to work. Mr. President, on that question, um, it struck me when I was in Ecuador, I was there in the middle of your administration, and uh, President Durambayen initiated many free market policies, one of which raised the price of gas considerably because it had been underwritten, I believe, by the government. So all of the cab drivers in uh, the city of Quito that I talked to were pretty mad at you because uh, now their gas cost a lot more. When you introduced these free market uh, measures and privatization, uh, was there a groundswell of, of uh, frustration against you because of that? Well, the thing is with this false uh, image of uh, uh, the state giving cheap services, they were really getting it back in other ways. When I became president, uh, and I examined the budget, the national budget for the first year, 78% uh, of every dollar spent was going really to waste. Only the rest, 22, was invested in development. Because the rest was the gas, gasoline, like you say, was cheap, yes. But that was subsidized by the state, which meant that the state could not attend to health, could not attend to education, because there was the voting to keep a false image of the price of gas. And at the end of my four years as president, the comparison was that from 78% voted for general expenditures, it was reduced to 44 and that 56% of the national budget was invested in development. So, so that answers your question. It was just a matter that before you created a false image. Gas is cheap, yes, but other things you didn't have. The moment you charge for gas a comparable price, you could do the things that you had to do as president. Thank you. Question over here. Um, on Friday, you spoke of international social, social injustices, and I appreciate that because it reminded me of my own personal responsibility to do something about that. Um, but I'm wondering what you think, um, or if you think, that Westmont as an institution has a responsibility to do something about that. And if so, what do you think that is? So the question was uh, regarding social justice. Uh, yes. Regarding social justice, can you think of something that you think would be helpful for the Westmont community? How could the Westmont community yeah. be involved in social justice? Well. Uh, I think maybe the best answer I can give to that is do not be ashamed to get into politics. This is the one thing. Most everybody says, oh, I, I, I don't want to get involved. It's the other one. The other guy is going to be. And uh, Bart had asked me uh, when I first arrived here on, on Thursday night, why did I get involved into politics? As an architect planner, I was the deputy director for the planning of reconstruction of an area that was devastated by an earthquake in 1949. 
And uh, here we were doing uh, all sorts of investigations on the social reality, on the economic reality, because after all planning, whether it be for a little cup or for a large city, whatever, it means planning for an individual. You don't do a house because you feel that you want to build a house, then leave it locked. You don't build a hospital. You have a purpose to build a hospital. And therefore, uh, here we were, a, a group of young professionals, planning what had to be done to reconstruct a, a very large area of the country. But it was not up to us to take the decisions. It was not up to us to, uh, to uh, put into the third dimension of reality what we were planning. And the only way to do that is not by thinking about it, but by doing something. And the only way was to get into politics in the good sense of the word. Politics does not mean power. Politics does not become getting rich quickly, no. Politics should mean servicing the community. And maybe at the local level of your college, later at the level of the community here around Santa Barbara, maybe later at the level of the state of California, you should, if you feel that you want to do something for other people, that if you just don't want to go through life vegetating, making enough money to survive or making a lot of money so that you can put it in the bank, but that your life in this earth, I think God meant us to serve the fellow man, then you have to be not ashamed to get into politics. The moment that you take that decision, you will see that uh, it's rewarding to see what you can do for the people. Let me ask a follow-up question and then we'll come over here. You've held many political positions. Which did you find most satisfying? And Brad, uh, we've got a little ring in the monitors up here. Uh, the uh, possibly most interesting position that I think I've held in my life, and there have been many, was probably to be in City Hall. To be the mayor of the city of Quito, the capital of Ecuador. I was the mayor for two periods, for eight years. I hold that record, by the way, in Ecuador, where stability, whether in local government or in national government, is not really uh, the reality. Uh, I have great pride in saying that uh, I hold the record for all of Ecuador and all its history of the longest period in office as a mayor, two periods. But uh, I didn't get there right away. Uh, I, uh, to answer the young lady, I said, get involved in politics. How did I get? Well, the first thing was to try to examine the uh, parties that uh, were present at that time, uh, choose the one that I thought represented more my way of thinking, my way of helping the community. I found that this was not so. Eventually, a man by name of Camilo Ponce started a new party, and I said, this is what I feel that my way of helping should be, so I was one of the promoters, one of the founders, and uh, eventually, a couple of years afterwards, I presented myself as a candidate for city councilman, which is the lowest in the, in the ladder of politics, and I have gone up through provincial uh, representation. I was uh, twice minister in housing once and public works another, 
And, but the, the most important job uh, for me was being the mayor of the city of Quito because it was probably the one office that was something tangible. Uh, you could see almost daily what you were doing, what the result of what you were, your decisions of what you were planning uh, came to reality. Of course, the presidency is the most responsible position that a man can hold in, in any country, these or mine. But there are many things that are uh, in the theory of managing the country. There are a lot of intangibles that you don't, you don't see, you, don't, you are not so immediate uh, con contact with as uh, in the mayorship. That was the most important job in my way of thinking. Uh, I think it was important, although it was short periods, uh, the working legislator, I've been three times in Congress, and uh, the possibility of helping change those things. And just one point of clarification, earlier in one of your answers you mentioned that you didn't have the Congress. I, I take it you, by that you mean you didn't have their support? I didn't have the majority, so therefore I couldn't have the, the, the support. Great. And uh, the, the uh, president today has the support of Congress. He was, after all, chosen by Congress to hold this itinerant position that he has now is uh, uh, sort of an in-between. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, you probably know that my successor, uh, President Bukharan, left office forcefully uh, after seven months in office because Congress just decided they had enough with him and disqualified him. Uh, you, go call to in, you call impeachment? Impeached, that? yeah. The, yeah, the yeah. president that followed President Sisto Durambayen was impeached and left office uh, under uh, much, much frustration and it threw the country into a very, very difficult situation. And we may come back to that, but let's take this question. Yeah, with the uh, rise of the European Economic Union and the, the stronger nations of Europe um, banding together to help those lesser nations, um, how do you feel that that affects um, the ranking, uh, the economic ranking of the United States in the future, and uh, if the United States is to take a second position in the uh, world economy, um, does NAFTA, which was the, um, the, la the latest agreement between um, Latin American countries, severely affect our ranking, and should the United States do likewise? as the, those stronger nations in Europe have. Before you answer that, Mr. President, just to explain, NAFTA, for those of you who don't know, is North American Free Trade Agreement, which uh, became uh, the reality of United States policy in this administration recently, and but does not spread all the way through South America. And um, so the question is, is the European Union common market, is that going to displace the United States as a strong economic power? And should we, therefore, form our own union in this hemisphere? Well, uh, I think that we must remember that in December, no, I'm sorry, yes, December of 1994, on, uh, after a meeting between the 9th and to the 11th of that month, 34 countries of the hemisphere uh, signed the, the Act of Miami which was presented by Mr. Clinton in the summit of the Americas with the idea precisely that towards world globalization parallel to what was being done in Europe with the CEE, uh, we should here in this hemisphere, 
in the Americas, 34 nations, agreed that by the year 2005, which was 10 years from that date, we should have implemented the complete free trade zone of this hemisphere, possibly as a consequence of what was happening outside of uh, the Western Hemisphere, what was happening in, in Europe. But you, you remember that uh, I mentioned to you uh, last, uh, last meeting that uh, the European Economic Commission uh, that started first with a number of countries and kept growing, I think there are something like 16, 19 now in Europe. At one time there were only eight and there were 12. They kept growing as a necessity to have a regional market. And they would give us lessons to the rest of the world, of course, the developing nations, that we should do the same thing. And here, when we try to do that, what do they do by exactly the reverse? Start giving protective measurements uh, towards the members of the group rather than tending towards globalization. And not only that, but as I told you, to start protecting uh, countries that were not part of the CEE but had been former colonies or associated with them. In a way, the reaction of the United States in the creation of the uh, Americas uh, Summit and the, uh, the, the help in the discussions has gradually made it uh, more uh, free that uh, these countries are not competing with the former colonies of the European Union members. And uh, eventually, I think this is going to resolve itself. And of course, the leadership of the United States, which is after all the biggest partner within the hemisphere, is very important to us. Within the hemisphere, the states are the principal uh, 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 fountain of interchange, both for uh, what you buy and what you sell to us. It's our business in the hemisphere, maybe uh, uh, about a third of it is between, as an average, some countries more, some less, as an average, the business between our countries and the United States and the rest of the world have the other two-thirds. So you are our biggest business partner. And if uh, this idea, and this is what I tried not offending you all uh, when I talk about it, but presenting realities, if you would have at the end of the Second World War uh, start treating us as partners as we are now, possibly the development of Latin America would have been very different and the reality in Latin America would be that you had south of the uh, Rio Grande more or less a similar degree of development that you have in your own country. Okay, thank you. Let's take a question over here. Uh Mr. President, I realize that one of the major issues in the third world, one of the major problems is the debt crisis. I'm wondering uh, what kind of uh, implications that's had for Ecuador and if there's maybe a strategy that Ecuador has in how to deal with the, the debt uh, that it holds in the world in the future. I don't know whether you are close enough to the mic. I hear your voice, but I don't quite distinguish okay. what you are asking me. I'm, I'm asking about the, the national debt of Ecuador National and, debt. Yes. Yes. And what kind of uh, strategies Ecuador as a country has for the future in dealing with its debt problems, and how also how that will affect the social 
uh, programs that the government's doing within the country? I'm very glad that you asked me this because this was one of my biggest problems when I got into office. The previous governments have left unpaid the foreign debt uh, in so far as capital is concerned since 1987 and in so far as uh, interest they stopped paying in 1989. I took office in 1992. So in 1992 we had five years of not paying capital, three years not paying even interest. This meant that Ecuador didn't have credit anywhere. If I would have come to this country, to one of your organizations or to any other place and tried to borrow for development, I wouldn't get any credit because they said, I'm sorry, you, you owe us a lot of money for a long time back. You don't pay. How you have a face to come and request them? It was my hardest decision, one of the hardest decisions, to convince the country that if we wanted to be put back in the map, that if we wanted investment in the country, that if we wanted the international banks and organizations to lend us the group of mainly European countries to whom Ecuador owe a lot of money and renegotiate in repayable terms, not in what they wanted to impose us because that was one of the difficulties. The foreign institutions, the foreign governments wanted to impose the conditions under which you have to pay. And uh, we still have to keep on working in education, in health, etc. So we couldn't dedicate every one of, my, of our earnings to pay the foreign debt. Eventually, the foreign debt was renegotiated, was signed with uh, the whole group of countries. And uh, we made it a point during the time that I was still in office to be punctual. And that, therefore, uh, we were able to get credit again because there are, of course, a number of things that you cannot do on your own, that you have to go and get credit on a long-term basis. We have some loans from Japan, for instance, that are today lent at 30 years with 10 years grace with 2.1 uh, to 2.5 interest rate, which are very generous terms that Japan does, without making it an obligation to uh, invest in Japan. You can invest it worldwide, Any, wherever you can do it best uh, by getting the most for the, for the least. But we couldn't do that until we renegotiated the foreign debt. The uh, government that succeeded me, as uh, Bart mentioned, um, they thought that why all the money that was coming through taxes, why pay the people uh, abroad, why pay it to the banks, spend it? And they didn't realize that that, that meant right away that the uh, Flujo, you say, the, the, the uh, stream of, of, of lending had to stop because everybody said, no, first, if you want to keep on having credit, you have to be on time. That's what you do, any one of you. Any one of you that goes to a bank, to a commercial bank, if you don't pay what you owe, you never get a cent back, uh, lend it again. And uh, maybe you go to another bank, but the other bank might not hear that you owe this one, but the moment they hear, the word spreads, oh, this man doesn't pay the bank, so you, you don't get. So it's the same thing with countries. You don't pay your foreign debt, you don't get additional lending. And, and the lending should be, of course, just for the development. That'll probably relate to student loans somehow, I would guess. Uh, here, I'd like to uh, give the president an opportunity. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to take the last question here. We only have about three minutes left. And I'd like to give the president an opportunity 
Mr. President, if you would just share, you have uh, a thousand students here, young people mainly from the United States, some from other countries. Uh, do you just have any advice for them, just plain advice about how to live their lives and what they would do with the next 30, 40 years of their lives? Well, uh, of course, there are two ways of looking at uh, your, your future. One could be, uh, how am I going to get richer in the shortest time and then enjoy life? That can be one outlook. Many people do that. You know a lot of people around you that does that. Or how can I best serve my fellow man during the period of time, short, medium, long, whatever God has in mind for us, how best we can serve fellow men. And uh, many people might find a lot of satisfaction in, within the first uh, four or five years, ten years of their life, making a lot of money and the rest of the time uh, going around the world, seeing the, everything that there is to see, but not doing anything except for oneself. Or they can go, as it has been my case, and I'm very glad that I chose that road. I'm not a rich man, I live by my work, uh, but uh, I, I, I think that my lifelong experience, I had a very fortunate uh, case of having an excellent wife, who as I mentioned uh, last time, has accompanied me for the last 52 years. We've been married for 52 years, she has helped me, she has understood that uh, our aim in life should be to serve our fellow men and that way prepare our own children and our grandchildren, great-grandchildren, towards that. And I think that we have not done such a bad job if you judge by Alicia, whom you know here. So you sure. have a first-hand experience from her. Great. Thank you very much. Let's thank President Sixto Giovanni Let me mention that you'll be able to ask some of the other questions that you may have had and not been able to get to the microphone today at 315 where, Jim? At the observable, reservable, reservable dining room, 315, an open discussion with President Duran Baye. You're dismissed. <laughs>